Welcome to the new Right to 9-11 podcast. I am Sarah Holman. I'm a junior and secondary education social studies major focusing on history and political science. This podcast was created as part of a history course at Indiana University East. This class, by the same title, explored major themes in the U.S. from the 1960s to the early 2000s. In this episode, I will investigate the genealogy of the Christian New Right, specifically examining Jerry Falwell Sr.'s organization, The Moral Majority. I wanted to examine the moral majority, the main arm of the Christian New Right, and Falwell's reasons for its creation in a balanced way. So what is the moral majority, and who is Jerry Falwell Sr.? Jerry Falwell Sr. is a master of publicity and marketing. He had his old-time gospel hour, a nationally syndicated radio and television ministry, in 1956 at the early age of 22. The same year, he founded Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, a church that went from 35 members in 1956 to an over 2,000-member megachurch in the early 1980s. At that time, it was only one of 70 with this distinction in 1984. This growth and the following gave him credibility. He initially founded the conservative political lobbying group, as he refers to it, to fight humanism in the United States, to boldly engage the culture with a pro-life, pro-traditional family, pro-national defense, and pro-Israel platform. Why did Falwell form the organization? That is a question this episode will answer. For me, this is a personal conversation. In my experience, when I mention that I am a Christian, let alone a pastor's wife, many, including my own family, assume I vote Republican. I don't. I claim to be independent. However, like most independents, I often side with a particular party, and mine is the Democratic Party. Also, I did not grow up in a Christian home, but the ripples were still noticed. My husband and I grew up in the 1990s during the lull of the moral majority. My family did not know about the moral majority. But did his? And did it affect his upbringing at all? Yeah, my family was very different. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am 36 years old. I pastor a church in rural Ohio. I grew up in a family that was uh, very conservative politically and fairly involved. I remember going as a kid to some local campaign events, uh, writing uh, a letter to a political figure, and you know, coming out of, of high school and college, I had kind of adopted uh, some of the ideas that would eventually become the alt-right um, since coming to faith, I've really re-examined a lot of those and over time uh, have arrived at a place where I would describe myself as politically homeless. I just don't see anybody talking with a voice that I really agree with on all fronts. And so I don't really feel comfortable with either party that uh, defines American politics. To accomplish this mission, I have paired numerous sources with our personal experiences. After tracing the organization's history, I will demonstrate the link between the moral majority and the rise of the religious right, paying attention to Christian voters' thoughts on prayer in schools and abortion. To better understand this history, I will examine the organization's founder, Jerry Falwell, and his writings. Finally, I will explore the legacy of the moral majority. Was it mission accomplished? If so, why the reboot in 2004? And what is happening with churches and politics today? Based on the facts and Falwell's own admission, The Moral Majority is not a religious organization. The Moral Majority was purely political. The leaders hoped to change the political and religious landscape. And it worked. In April of 1979, 
Moore majority entered the political arena. When asked in 1982 why Falwell founded the organization, he answered. I suppose there were two things, Tony, that drove me out of um, inactivism and passivity on, on, on social and moral issues. One was 1962 when the Supreme Court expelled God from public schools in this country and we entered into a period of secular humanism that has been damaging, I think, to young people, to our society. And the second, 11 years later, in 1973, when the same court ruled that uh, unborn babies are not human beings and have no fundamental rights, neither the right to life, legalizing abortion on demand. Those two things I never believed could happen in America. Russia, perhaps. America, no. Those, plus the breakdown of the family unit and many other moral problems, uh, caused me to see that Edmund Burke was right when he said that all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. According to Falwell, the moral majority's conception focused on the Supreme Court's rulings, most notably Roe v. Wade in 1973, and the other ruling in 1962 when the Supreme Court expelled God from the public schools in this country, as he said. In 1962, the ruling he mentions in the audio clip is when school prayer was struck down. Full disclosure, I had to Google this when I first watched the interview. Even as a Christian, I wasn't sure what he was talking about. Journalists and scholars have questioned and challenged his reasoning. Is this really why he founded the Moral Majority? In 2014, scholar Randall Balmer pointed out that the Moral Majority and the Christian right were formed about six years after the Roe decision. If the legality of abortion was the catalyst, why did it take so long? A closer look at the history of the abortion debate reveals that the issue was not a constant issue for evangelicals. Instead, for years, it was labeled a Catholic issue. In fact, some Baptist leaders even applauded the ruling. According to Gallup, in February of 1979, the year the Moore majority was founded, 22% of registered voters believed abortion should be legal in all circumstances. 19% felt it should be illegal in all circumstances, while 55% believed it should be legal in some circumstances. That's an overwhelming majority of voters who felt abortion should be legal. In the same year, according to Pew Research, 469 of the 533 congressmen identified as Christian. That's 87.9% of Congress. 340 of them were Protestant, and 129 were Catholic. Despite Falwell's claims and speeches, interviews, and his publications, these statistics do not demonstrate that secularism was a determining force behind U.S. government policies. With these figures in mind and the history of evangelicals staying out of the abortion debate, it is not surprising that Balmer argued the reasons the coalition came together were financial, racial, and political with the primary aim of stopping President Carter's re-election. Religious scholar Seth Dowland argued that Carter's presidency, more specifically, the White House Conference on Families led to the formation of the moral majority and its platform. The Conference on Families wanted to study the needs of all American families and included homosexual and single parents in the study. Falwell and other religious leaders refused to send delegates to the conference because the inclusion of these non-traditional families. They then framed the conference as an attack on the traditional family by the government. Here, Falwell, for the first time, employed the family values rhetoric 
contemporary audiences have heard for over 30 years. Was the formation of the Moore majority racially motivated? Falwell, in a 1982 interview, admitted to his past racist views. Early in my ministry, I discussed racism uh, quite openly and often, but uh, very frankly, on the wrong side of the issue. I was raised um, in a southern city, a very lovely, wonderful southern city, but a very segregated one. And uh, that's not to say that the South, uh, geographically alone, is guilty in that area. I think the whole nation has been. Uh, I grew up in a segregated uh, society. And even after I received Christ as my personal Savior more than 31 years ago, uh, I translated that right into uh, the, uh, what you just said earlier, the, the Christian context. I was uh, a graduate of Bible college, pastoring a church for several years before I personally dealt with my own segregationist position and gave it the test of scripture. The scripture is always correct. We who often interpret it are not always correct. And uh, I remember preaching a sermon once on uh, justifying uh, the segregationist position, Old and New Testament verses. You know, one can make the Bible say almost anything he wants to make it say. And it was quite a thing for me on the first, after the Lord had really broken my heart on the issue. I think, I think racism, by the way, is a spiritual problem. I don't think it's a matter of skin. I think it's a matter of sin. But he later claims and held on to the fact that it was not the reason for the group's formation. It was a sin, he recognized, and he had asked for the Lord's forgiveness. In the same response, he also admitted he told pastors to stay out of politics. So why the change of heart? Why was he now a political activist rallying Christians to demand change? Well, that was all interrelated. Uh, back in those days, if you recall, that's when the civil rights marches were going on. Preachers sermon once on ministers and marches, challenged the preachers, stay in the pulpit, uh, pray, preach, but uh, just don't get out in the streets. Don't involve yourself in a secular way. The government will self-correct its own ills. And uh, it was all a, a part of that same era in my E-R-A-N-E-R-R-O-R -R -R in my life. Despite his denial, Falwell's past stance against pastors' activism was only during the time they were fighting discrimination and racist policies. Those policies did not affect him, but school prayer, abortion, and Israel do. These are the evils that really convicted him as a Christian to act? It's hard to completely separate Falwell's past positions and while his motivations may not have been explicitly related to race, there was definitely underlying racial motivation. Balmer examined the movement and found that in the mid to late 1970s, Falwell and other pastors faced losing federal funds for their private Christian schools because they did not meet affirmative action policy standards for integration and inclusion, despite Falwell's insistence the schools did. The school, Liberty Baptist College and Schools, I would suspect that our percentage of minorities will be comparable to the percentage of the population. In 1976, Bob Jones University, a private Christian school, lost its funding after numerous warnings from the government because of its lack of integration. Fowler used this action as an example in his own work. He also included Phyllis Shafley's essays to illustrate these dangers, but instead of race, Shafley used gender. Shafley is an interesting figure She's discussed in more detail in a different episode. The warning that he's using her writings for 
is to tell Christians that if the ERA passes, Christian institutions would have to admit women into their seminaries, regardless of denomination beliefs. This is used to make the argument that the government's interfering with matters of faith and we need to watch out. I asked my husband as a pastor for over 10 years with a master's in Christian's ministry, why did Falwell start the Moral Majority? Falwell continually mixed policy and religion when asked why he formed the organization. Is any of what he said accurate? What do you know about the Moral Majority? Honestly, most of what I know about the Moral Majority has been uh, conversations with you as you've been going through this class. It wasn't... Uh, a period of American or church history that I was super familiar with before I knew who Jerry Falwell was. I knew that the moral majority, you know, had become this political force in American politics. And, you know, I was definitely more familiar with the aftermath of it. And, uh, you know, just like you talk to an older church member and they'll say stuff like, oh, when they took God out of the schools as, you know, just kind of uh, an, an assumption. We all agree on this. Fowell himself says the moral majority wasn't religious, it was political. We both agree it was a political organization. I'm not going to argue with the man who said that. Why do you think he actually started the moral majority? He claims it was the loss of prayer in school and the abortion rulings. And again, he talks about family values disintegrating. But I just, I struggle with that. If it's not a religious background, it's political. What were his political motivations? I, I feel like you can definitely tell that for him, he was not a person animated by very clear and consistent convictions on a certain number of issues. Because when you listen to his earliest presentations of his convictions, he's including things uh, originally racial divides and, and segregation. Uh, but then also, you know, originally he's talking about pornography a lot. And later on, that just vanishes. And, and so I, I see that as indicative of he's pursuing something else other than a particular theological or moral agenda. And you look at the trajectory of, of his life and his general approach to things is um, how to get and maintain uh, power, his interaction with uh, radio ministries, um, the Jim Baker situation stepping in and, and kind of taking over some broadcasting there. Um, you know, he developed an audience and had achieved, you know, a measure of, of influence in the good old fashioned American way, which is through uh, marketing and, uh, and technology and mass appeal. And then I think he saw an opportunity to translate his uh, audience into another form of power, which is political influence. Yeah, so what I've noticed is you mentioned like the racial things earlier. In 82, he actually sits down with someone and has a discussion about race and he says, I was wrong. I grew up in a Southern home, much like how you say, like your background influenced your beliefs after high school. Like you don't consider yourself a racist or against immigration. Now he kind of does the same thing in 82, not equating you to Jerry Falwell. I don't need you to be mad at me later, but that, that background tended to be there. And in that same interview, he brings up the 62 Supreme court ruling when God was taken out of schools and the abortion debate. 
so it almost seems like he's stuck with those consistently, but it feels more of a cultural warish conversation as opposed to religious conviction. And I think his statements on prayer are really the best indicator that he is pursuing things that have a political slant. Because theologically speaking, there is no demand for a Christian to enforce public official Christian prayer. There, there is no command anywhere in Scripture to be found for that. And, and so when you're making that a major issue for you, um, you're not doing so because of theological convictions, because there's just nothing there in the New Testament to support that. I mean, individuals praying was still allowed. It was just something that proved uh, to make for great sound bites because you could say, you know, they took God out of the schools, but it, it just had a very weak uh, biblical uh, backing or, or theological backing. He uses a term, secular humanism. It's in his writings, it's in his preaching. I don't know if you had heard it in the sermon that you found of his, I think it was on YouTube or a speech, I can't remember which one it was. But he says it again in this interview in 82, and I've pulled sound clips for him, so there'll be little bites of that throughout. However, I don't technically understand what he means by that. I don't know if it's something because I didn't grow up in the church. Those two words just don't have the same meaning for me. What does that mean? Yeah, so secular humanism uh, by itself is, you know, not necessarily a bad term to use. It describes a view of the world or of, of culture and government in which the, uh, the baseline reality is there is no God and, um, you know, or in a pluralistic society where everybody believes what they want to believe, but we are going to structure our culture and our government um, in, in such a way that makes no reference to uh, specific biblical foundations for morality, for instance. Uh, so it, it's a way of looking at life that specifically rejects the religious core for decision-making, uh, policy, governance, things like that. Which is interesting that that's the term he's trying to use is basically they're taking God out of our government. We're a godless government. But then in the same breath, he says, this isn't a religious movement. It's all political. Doesn't that kind of seem oxymoronic to you? Or paradoxical, maybe, more than oxymoron? Well, it's also really interesting because he's saying, oh, this is the influence of secular humanism. Uh, the, the people who are introducing these policy changes, um, they identify as Christians. These are people who are going to church. They are not coming out and saying, oh, you know, we're, we're the atheist group of America and we're passing these policies uh, because we believe there is no God. By and large, the people who were, uh, you know, pushing for these things you know, whether rightly or wrongly, they're claiming uh, the same kind of broad identity that he does. I came to the conclusion, and I think we both agree, like, it's just power. He really wanted political power. He wanted to be able to say, I influence X. I have this many number of people behind me. And he even says, like, in interviews, the millions of people or the X number of people, he's very big on numbers. Um... What I find interesting, though, is we kind of disagree on what he is trying to get power for, what his end goal was. What is it that you think his end goal was? And then I'll go ahead and say what mine is, and we'll kind of go back and forth. 
I feel like the end goal for him, and perhaps why he said mission accomplished, is a reordering of American Christianity into a dualistic view of the world in which they are the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is directly aligned with the Republican Party. And that on the other side, the enemy is the Democratic Party or, you know, secular humanism or whatever term, you know, he wants to use. But to to redraw this line in such a way that it is not just a particular issue like abortion that a Christian cares about, but um, things like tax policy that are not, again, covered nowhere in theology, uh, but become this package deal. And once those lines are drawn, once your basic view of the world is an overlap of the church, the people of God, and conservative political uh, bundles, that then is a self-perpetuating voting block of influence that more or less continues on long after his death. And so he had established a major shift in how American Christians interpreted their faith in the public sphere. See, and here's where we disagree. I feel like he may have helped engineer these culture wars that we see nowadays, but it wasn't for him so much wanting to align Christian beliefs with the Republican Party as much as it was trying to create fear so that people would vote for policies that helped him financially. He had the fear, he creates this fear of they're going to take the funding away from Christian schools because we're Christian schools and we're, we're creating barriers to people getting in. Uh, specifically, women can't be uh, pastors in the Baptist church, like women don't enter theology. So the ERA, those things were saying, affirmative action says all minorities have to be entered into schools. And he's saying, see, they want to make us enter women into our faith. If they're going to step into our faith and take our tax money because of our faith, they can do it to you. And I see that continue now. That's where I feel like we, we, we divert. I hear you and I feel like we're on the same page. But for me, it's more of a fear mongering, getting them on my side, not because Republican versus Democrat, but if they're going to take the church's money, they're going to take your money. If they can take from big, they're going to come after the little guy. And that creates more of that us them mentality but he's equating himself and other people with large amounts of money with the average American who was making nothing. And the background of this is it's late 70s, early 80s. They witnessed some severe financial struggles in the 70s and all these fluctuations in wealth at that point. How do you get them on board to get away from the things that are helping them without telling them the things that are meant to help you are actually hurting you and, hey, they're going to come after you next, not just us? Well, I think I would maybe you know walk back a little bit and say, no, I agree with you, especially when you're looking at the early stages of this. I think that what catapulted him and made him from criticizing the ministers and marches uh, to saying, look, we've got to charge into this is a personal sense of endangerment. He didn't feel threatened by segregation 
because of the, the culture and the place that he lived in. What he did feel threatened by was government, what he viewed as overreach, into the running of private Christian schools. And so for him, this becomes now an existential crisis for uh, a major part of his ministry as a church. And so now it's like, okay, we're under attack but I think that eventually this morphs into, and he would have phrased it the other way around. He would have said, no, I want to align the Republican Party with Christianity, not Christianity with the Republican Party. The end result is the same. You have uh, an indistinguishable blending of the two. Uh, there, there's give and take on both, side, both sides where, yeah, abortion becomes a hallmark talking point uh, for Republican party, politics uh, after that point. But you also have you know, Christians' views on things like uh, taxation and immigration uh, that are shifted uh, to align with, uh, you know, political realities. But I, yeah, I think for him eventually it became not just self-preservation, although he always used the we're under attack, we're in danger, because that's how you, you know, make sure people stay with you. But I think for him, the, the goalpost shifted from preserving, uh, you know, self-preservation to I actually have a chance to change the broader shape of American power structures. After all this, I think it's better to let Fowell answer this question. Moral Majority is not a religious organization. It's political. In 1989, Fowell announced Mission Accomplished. Like Bush, 14 years later, it begged the question then and now. Was it really? In April of 1989, 27% of registered voters believed abortion should be legal in all circumstances. 18 felt it should be illegal in all circumstances. 50% believed it should be legal in some circumstances. In June and July of the same year, 29% of registered voters believed abortion should be legal in all circumstances. And 17% felt it should be illegal in all circumstances. 51% believed it should be legal in some circumstances. According to Pew Research, the 1989-1990 Protestant congressional makeup had actually gone down. 325 congressmen were Protestant and 139 were Catholic. While the total itself had stayed relatively the same, 464 of 535 members, or 86.7% of congressmen identified as Christian. However, abortion was still legal, and if anything, more people felt it should be legal in all circumstances, and the religious makeup of Congress had not changed. How was this mission accomplished? The truth is, it wasn't. If those were his goals, he failed. But if it was to create a voting block, he was mildly successful. According to historian Daniel K. Williams, Fawwell's more majority expanded the pro-life movement by encouraging evangelical denominations to embrace the pro-life cause. For example, in 1980, the Southern Baptist Convention no longer endorsed the abortion laws they had supported for the past nine years. The most significant impact was the mobilization of pro-life single-issue voters from the Democratic to Republican Party. Falwell and others recast the pro-life position as a conservative policy. However, it must be said, even though Falwell and the Moore majority had a large following in 1987, according to political scientists Siegelman, Wilcox, and Buell, it never reached the 67 million people or over 72% of the population many believed subscribed to the platform. 
Their study presented in 1986 argued that according to the 1981 and 1982 Gallup polls, only 8-12% to of Americans approved of the Moore majority at its height, and at most, only 5% of those polled were willing to join. And in 1986, in an interview and speech, Falwell recognized his own failure, kind of. He admitted that many said they supported some part of the platform, but were not willing to join him. Three years later, the moral majority ended and the 1990s were without the organization, but were there lasting effects? We came to, came of age in the 90s, moral majority ended, mission accomplished in 89. My family were and are very liberal Democrats. My mom grew up during the 1980s, but not in a Christian home. So she knew nothing about Falwell and the moral majority. Both my parents grew up in Union and nominally Catholic, but pro-choice homes. Informed by my faith or lack of, I had no right to dictate others' lives or choices. Yeah, my family was very different. Uh, I went to a private Christian school for the first uh, four grades. And uh, we had Bible studies that met in our house uh, or that we would go to friends' houses for. And, you know, I remember I was in, you know, Boy Scouts, but, you know, you couldn't be in Boy Scouts. It was the Christian version, even more Christian version of of Boy Scouts. And so that just kind of permeated our, our entire lives at that point. And, you know, not just Christianity, but this default assumption that, our political involvement with Republican causes was almost synonymous with our expression of faith. Whenever I heard my parents talking about political candidates, um, it was pretty one-sided. I remember being absolutely shocked that uh, one of my neighborhood friends had a parent who voted for Bill Clinton. I just thought that everybody hated the guy and he was so patently evil. It was, it was honestly really shocking. Like, oh! you know, this, this major thing that, that he had done. You mentioned at one point that coming out of, was it early, late high school, early college, that you had more alt-right backgrounds. What does that mean? How would you define how you felt? And do you feel that your childhood or the home you grew up in influenced those moves? Yeah. So, uh, I, I would say my, uh, upbringing definitely affected my views of immigration. And so, you know, I was, you know, very, very anti, you know, immigration, though, as a high school student, it was not an issue that it had directly impacted my life at all. It was just, again, kind of the, the unspoken assumption that, you know, this is a bad thing, this, you know, damages the economy and, you know, kind of dehumanizes uh, the people who did that. In, in terms of like alt-right stuff, I would say I was fairly racist. Uh, at the time, though, I wouldn't have described it as such. You know, you kind of have that alt-right cloaking and language of, oh, I don't, you know, I hate the color of their skin, but I hate their culture and more or less everything about them. And, uh, yeah, so it, it's been really interesting for me hearing those ideas, you know, then develop further and now expressed in the mainstream. And I made the comment that rip, it still rippled into my family, the moral majority and a lot of their standards, even though my mom swears she didn't know who they were. With you growing up in a Christian home, was the moral majority something that affected your childhood? Were your parents a part of it? It was interesting. I asked my dad about this, and he was aware of who they were, but he never really had any interaction with the official organization. 
but he did express a general agreement with you know the central concept of it which was that uh hey people in government you ought to listen to christians you mentioned that your dad was aware of the Mormon majority, agreed with some other policies, but like Falwell said, he was some of those who, yeah, I agree with you, but I'm not really joining in or wasn't a part of that. So with faith and politics, do you think it was founded in religious policies or feelings, or do you think it was just kind of overflow from the Mormon majority's influence? I, I think that the moral majority's influence was, was pretty far-reaching and that it just shaped the discussion that people are having, even if they were never a part of that particular organization. It framed these discussions along these lines of like, hey, you know, we should expect to see our views represented in government. We should be politically active and politically active oriented in a very specific way. A lot of it for me was kind of like how fish don't know that they're wet. And, I, you know, I just remember, you know, driving as a kid, we'd go on Saturdays to karate and on the radio uh, would either be Christian programming or Rush Limbaugh. And so there's, you know, more or less this constant exposure to these thoughts and ideas in the same settings that you're receiving religious instruction. But I don't remember the moral majority necessarily by name being brought up but now as an adult looking back at those things yeah it's pretty easy to identify the uh, organizations and structures and ideas that absolutely were a part of uh, my childhood upbringing. I mean yeah you went to a Christian school so your parents did kind of subscribe to this fundamentalist thinking of we need to keep everybody separate how long were you in the Christian school? Do you remember anything about that? Right, yeah. So I went to a, a Christian school through fourth grade. And, you know, I think it was more for cost reasons that I ended up going to the public school. But, yeah, there, there was that mindset of, you know, the ideal, if you can afford it, is not to let your kids go to a public school, but, you know, the school that specifically promised to bring your kids up in a Christian way and, and to help parents with that. Despite Falwell's admitted declining influence in the 1980s, the U.S. had 12 years of conservative or Republican leadership in the White House, at least until 1992, when Bill Clinton, a Democrat, became president. And despite Clinton's scandals, he was reelected in 1996. Yet Falwell did not respond to Clinton's election and scandals by automatically reforming the moral majority. He responded in 1995 with a monthly journal that reported on political, moral, and spiritual issues. Then in 2000 and 2004, he ran voter registration drives. It was not until November of 2004 that Falwell would relaunch the moral majority, as he said, to continue the evangelical revolution that swept President Bush back into the White House and saw the election of many pro-life leaders to national office. In the fall of 2004, I was a freshman at Liberty University and received an email welcoming me to the moral majority. I also remember discussions about Democrats staging photo ops outside of churches, but Republican church attendance was just accepted. One of my biggest memories and most influential was when someone asked for us to pray for the one student on campus that had a carry sign in his window because obviously the Democrat needed saving. It's one of those things that make me a little sad and nervous, even today as a Christian, and it just sticks with you. 
So what is his legacy? Falwell had planned to lead the group for four years, but passed away in May of 2007. His death and the resurrection of the Moore majority led the press to question the Moore majority's success. At that time, while abortion was still legal, it was a powerful tool to bring Christians to the polls. In 2005, 4 in 10 Christians participated in political campaigns, and 39% felt it was appropriate for clergy to discuss politics. But that is still a minority, and not far from the 31% of the average population. In 2022, his political movement still continues. I would say the, the biggest legacy is just the, the basic way that Americans and conservative, theologically conservative churches, uh, tend to uh, view the world through the same definitions that he used. They, they tend to, to view, uh, by and large, most evil in the world is because of left-leaning political action. And uh, the highest good can be achieved through um, conservative political action. And, and so you find this in the way that people react to things. Uh, so, so again, when we were pastoring in Missouri, uh, and, you know, I brought this up with people, that their reaction to protests during the national anthem carried a visceral emotional tone that was far greater than their reaction to, you know, anything in terms of, of sin in their own lives or of, of other things that would be morally far more evil. And that, that kind of a reaction indicates that, you know, the center of, of their religious uh, life had, had shifted to where the, the things that define culture wars uh, for them that still is where people draw the line today, where it's just assumed you're either for us or against us. And so if I, as a pastor, begin to say like, hey, um, you know, I don't think that we have uh, really honored the image of God in um, undocumented immigrants, then the immediate suspicion of people who hear a statement like that is, oh, he's going woke. Of uh, If you reject any part of um, conservative political ideology. If you disagree with any part of it, then the assumption is that you are then in support of secular humanism or you know radical leftists or, or whatever. And I think that inability to disentangle the church from that political ideology is the enduring legacy of Jerry Falwell. Do you think it's still there? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I would say like our current church is is probably the least entangled in the places that, you know, we've served. And, you know, they've been very willing, you know, to, to hear me, uh, you know, say things like, hey, you know, we're uh, we've we've been wrong about this or we need to be careful about this. And, you know, the stuff I'm saying in this podcast. But, you know, even there, you know, it's it's an ongoing struggle. Like it, it's it's almost. um you know, I don't want to use, you know, religious terminology, but, um, you know, some of it reminds me of, uh, you know, people who come out of cults where your basic value structure um, changes. Do you feel the legacy is waning for newer generations of Christians? 
um, our age, younger, what are you seeing? How are you, what are you witnessing? Yeah, it, it, it's always hard to try and play historian with events that are happening in real time. But I, I think that there's a, a very real chance that the presidency of Donald Trump will be seen as the fulmination of everything that he set in motion. You know, the... Who? Uh, Trump or, or Falwell? Everything that Falwell <laughs> set in motion, that, that with Donald Trump you have the highest difference between evangelical uh, cultures saying, yes, we're really aligning, uh, not just with an ideology, but here a person. And that being so very different and the biggest indicator of Trump support is like, are you an evangelical? And that, you know, is like the biggest identifier of of his supporters. And in reaction to that sharpening of that alignment, um, I think you've got a whole generation of uh, not just pastors, but young leaders in the church. I grew up, you know, again, during the Clinton trials and was told by my religious leaders, the only important thing that matters in these political leaders is they've got to have good morals. And then there's this, you know, such an open statement of hypocrisy. So I see a lot of us kind of reacting very vigorously against that. Uh, you see this in things, uh, we use the term deconstruction. Uh, you know, many people my age leaving the Christian faith entirely and saying, well, I, I, I no longer believe and, you know, maybe these, it starts with a political issue and then it just unravels everything. Uh, but you also have quite a lot of leaders. I would say most Christian leaders I know personally that are my age uh, or, or younger now as we're getting up their age. Uh, most of them uh, would reject both political parties and, and both political ideologies to some extent. Now, they will have, you know, more or less alignment on certain issues. But I think, you know, when you think back before the moral majority, I think, yeah, there's going to be the pendulum swing away from political involvement where we're saying, you know what, we're not going to fight the culture wars. We're tired of trying to fight the culture wars. And so, I, you know, we, we may go to the other extreme where it's, you know, isolationist, like, look, we're just going to have our own little thing here and the world's going to burn down around us. Uh, we're just not going to get involved. Um well, I'm not really sure what's next, but yeah, I do. I do see the youngest generation and churches in general are splitting. I, I think into those that are faith, guns, and freedom churches, and, and those that say, um, "Yeah, we're not that," but neither are we. You know, whatever the liberal equivalent uh, would be politically. I find that interesting. Um the idea of the back the back and forth i've always been in like the minority of our church because i was raised very liberal democratic home vote union like i didn't have that morality mattered but like in our home my family is very pro clinton so it was that's a private matter it didn't affect national security i would lie too if they asked me about having an affair that was the background of that. So I don't know. For me, 2016, Donald Trump was just very sad. I'd always kind of felt like I was in the minority of the church. Um, in my research, I found I'm actually really not. However, most Democrats tend to be Catholic, not Protestant. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I find it sad and I, I worry because I still see the culture war more so maybe than you do. 
because I feel like I've always been the target of it. I, I don't know how else to define his legacy other than messy. I still see, I don't know that I see as much change in future generations. I know that our children are being raised in a different home than what you were raised in and what I was raised in. But I've seen some of the youth members in really conservative homes go ultra right still without realizing that they are. And then I've also seen youth members just completely walk around away from the faith because like you said, it's there's just a bunch of hypocrites. There's no care. Unless you're God, glory, and guns, I don't belong in church. And I don't know that's what his legacy was wanting it to be, but that's what it's turned into. As we're coming to the end of our discussion, it makes me wonder, how would Falwell define his success? I don't know, but Liberty University was always going to be his legacy, and it continues to carry the torch for him and the moral majority. Liberty University only discusses his success, mobilizing the sleeping giant of evangelical voters, and it only mentions the beginning and end of the first moral majority, which they claimed, as Falwell argued, was disbanded to focus on expanding and improving Christian education at his school, Liberty University. Jerry Falwell's Moore Majority lives on through the Freedom Voters Organization. The political theater continues even after the Dobbs decision. The Freedom Voters Organization continues and claims it provides needed service for Christian voters. And its mission is to educate pastors and people of faith about biblical founding principles of our nation and why involvement in the public squares of right and duty. Apply biblical values in their voting at local, state, and federal election levels. Urge friends, family, and others to vote. Advance and defend the unchanging principles of life, liberty, and truth from a biblical worldview. And exhort people of faith to pray for our nation according to the Second Corinthians 7.14. This mission is almost identical to more majorities' platforms and practices, down to their foundational scripture. Falwell, in 2006, on his website, labeled himself the father of the modern religious right political movement. That label says it all. And much like any other father, his traits have continued and been passed on into this newer movement. It was never just about religious conviction or abortion for Falwell, it was all about the politics and power, but in a Christian religious rapper.